This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I'm here tonight with my dear colleague and co-host, Jeff Klein. How are you, Ann? I'm good, Jeff. How are you tonight? Uh, you know, it's September. It is September. The university is full and bustling again. It is an amazing thing. It's like we never took a break. It's right? true. And August comes around, and all of a sudden, the first-year MBAs arrive. We have preterm, Management 610. Then second-year students show up. Yeah. And before you know it, the freshmen show up, and it is just a crescendo. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely is. And, absolutely is. And, you know, it is good they come back. That's why we're employed, yeah, Jeff. <laughs> we, we get to continue to work here. Yes, exactly. If the students didn't come back, I'm not sure we would still be here ourselves. We probably wouldn't be. You know? And well, I would I, be sad about them. that. Yeah. No, that's true. Right? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. They give me hope for the future. We're going to talk a little bit about hope tonight. We huh? are going to talk about hope. I see what you did there. A segue. <laughs> <laughs> we have a wonderful show lined up, and I'm sorry that Mike, you see him is off tonight, so... He'll have to hear In the replay. Is that? That's right. That's where he is. We have a really a wonderful guest tonight, and it's just such an honor and a privilege tonight to have with us Dr. David Fagenbaum. And David is in the studio. And uh, you and I know David from way back, uh, for one. He is, I'm going to actually work uh, from, from the past forward. He is an undergrad at Georgetown originally. And then came to Wharton for an MBA, and after, uh, actually during the MBA, also went to Penn Med. So he is a University of Penn grad Mm -hmm. in two respects. And now, right now, David is working at Penn. He is a physician at Penn and has an incredible story. And now to add another feather in the cap, he is a new author. In fact, that's the reason we're gathered here tonight. And that's to talk about David's new book called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David, welcome to the show. We're really delighted to have you. Thank you for having me on. It's it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Well, David, um, Jeff and I both know a little about you because of your uh, time here at Wharton in the MBA program. And I also have to add that uh, David sponsored some projects for undergrads as mm-hmm. well. Uh, he and his organization have hosted one of our MBAs uh, as a member of the nonprofit board, mm-hmm. you know, to work on the board. So, David, but let me just start with an opening question. What inspired you to write your book, Chasing My Cure? So, over the course of my uh, time in medical school here at UPenn, I went from being this healthy third-year medical student to dying in the intensive care unit at the same hospital that I was treating patients in, um, nearly dying five times over the course of a three-year period. And with each one of those deadly episodes and with each time I I approached death, 
I learned so much about life and about living from those deadly episodes, lessons that I never could have learned had I not gone through those, but lessons mm-hmm. that I felt like I needed to share with others. And so I've written this book really to try to share the lessons I learned from those experiences so that others don't have to go through the same experiences that I went through to learn them. Okay. Now, can I'm, I'm aware, but can you tell, uh, tell our listeners a little bit? more about what brought you to death's door. Sure. So it was um, uh, back in 2010, healthy medical student. And over the course of a couple weeks, I started noticing fatigue and weight weight loss, night sweats, abdominal pain, kind of some strange features that I didn't really know what they were due to. Um, I finished an exam and I went straight from my exam to the emergency department just across the street. And um, they did blood work and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are shutting down. We, we don't know why. We need to hospitalize you right away. And unfortunately, I became really, really sick over the next few days. I was moved to the intensive care unit. I had a retinal hemorrhage and went blind in my left eye. I gained 50 pounds of fluid due to organ dysfunction, all with no diagnosis. We didn't know what it was that was killing me. Um, Fortunately, um, well, unfortunately, I got quite sick over the next 11 weeks, but fortunately, I was eventually diagnosed with a disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, where basically the immune system becomes hyperactivated and then starts attacking all of your vital organs. Mm -hmm. It's idiopathic, which means we don't know why that happens. Um, Unfortunately, uh, about a third of us with this disease will die within five years of diagnosis, and another third will die within 10 years of diagnosis. But I was so sick at the stage Mm -hmm. that I was diagnosed that the doctors didn't think I would survive. And my family brought in a priest to administer my last rites to me back in November of 2010. I've really Mm -hmm. considered that moment to be the start of my overtime, you know, a period where where every Mm -hmm. second counts. And, you know, I didn't think I would have it, um, but I Mm -hmm. really live with this sense of overtime. And were you, you know, in in this period of time um, as you're getting sick, are you conscious of of what's going on and kind of? tracking your system symptoms and everything as a a medical student would? So for the first few days I was, and then I got so sick um, when I was in the ICU that I really was unconscious for several weeks straight um, with, with, Mm. with, with no wakefulness. And, um, and of course, uh, I, I had some, uh, I have some memories from that period. I wasn't really awake, but I I do remember um, reflecting a little on my life. And I remember um, thinking about uh, at, at that stage, I'd said goodbye to my family because the yeah. doctors didn't think I would survive. And um, I remember reflecting back on my life and realizing that I didn't regret anything that I had done in my life or anything <laughs> or things that I had said. But what I really regretted were the things that I had not said or that I had not done and that I would not be able to do. And um, when I started to improve, I ended up getting treated with multi-agent chemotherapy. So Castleman disease is kind of like an autoimmune disease, and it's kind of like a cancer, and we don't know why it does what it does, but it's treated typically with chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy saved my life, but when I started to come back to life, really, um, I remembered that feeling that, oh my gosh, of regretting things I hadn't done. And so I left the hospital with this this motto, and it's think it, do it. And mm-hmm. it's basically, you know, if you think of doing something and you want to do it, don't let that voice in the back of your head talk you out of it because at some point you're not going to have time to do it and Mm -hmm. that we really need to make Mm -hmm. the most of every moment. That's right. Oh boy. So I'm just curious, David, how were you diagnosed? I eventually had a lymph node biopsy. So a lymph node removed and because Castleman disease is so similar to lymphoma, you need to look at the lymph node under the microscope. And um, back when I was diagnosed, there actually was, well, 
there, there's very little known about Castleman right. disease. In fact, there wasn't even a, a diagnostic criteria. There wasn't a clear checklist that a doctor could use to diagnose it. They had to recognize the pattern and know about the disease. Um, that's something that we've changed mm-hmm. since then. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, I mean, that in and of itself, do you see it as a little bit of a miracle that you were diagnosed? I do. I think that diagnosis is tough. When a disease only affects or 5,000 new diagnoses each year in the U.S., um, it, it's rare. That's about as common as ALS. And, of course, mm-hmm. ALS has um, much more awareness, mm-hmm. and, and it needs even more awareness because it's an awful disease. Um, but there are also rare diseases like Castleman disease um, that have much less awareness. In, in fact, there are 7,000 rare diseases, of which 95% don't have a single FDA-approved therapy. And that's kind of hard to believe in this day and age. We like yeah. to think that we have solutions for, for most things, but actually for nearly all rare diseases, which affect about 30 million Americans, one in 10 Americans have a rare disease, mm-hmm. most of which don't have a treatment. Wow. So, I mean, we'll, yeah. we're going to go all over the place. Right, I have a feeling yeah. in this conversation. Yeah. But, but so given your experience, um, what advice do you have for listeners who um, are either suffering from or caring for someone with a rare disease? I think the most important thing is to be an advocate for yourself. So, um, you know, I was a medical student, so if I had been conscious and awake, I would have been asking questions and, and probing sure. and, you know, what should we do next? But but I wasn't. I was so sick that I couldn't be, but my family could be. My, yeah. my mm-hmm. dad, my sisters, um, it, it's not that physicians aren't working in your best interest or that they're not trying their best, but it's that, you know, they're busy and they have a lot of other patients and they may have only seen two Castleman disease patients in their career. And so you really need to have Mm -hmm. loved ones, um, or if you're able to, as a patient fight for yourself. And Mm -hmm. there's a a really important message all throughout the book, all about hope. We mentioned hope earlier and, and it's about how hope is so important, but sometimes hoping and, and wishing for something can sometimes stop us from taking action because we mm-hmm. say, you know, I just, I believe my doctor is going to do it. I, I hope that my doctor is going to mm-hmm. figure out a solution for me. But I think it's important to reflect on what is it that you're hoping for and then what action can you take to get a little bit closer to, yeah. to that that you're hoping for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talk about leadership a lot on this show um, <laughs> as as really residing in the individual actions. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Exactly. If, and, and so it's that opportunity to contribute Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, pardon the uh, poor pun here, but to diagnose, right, <laughs> and then contribute to whatever it takes to move the group, the person, the patient, you know, closer to that goal, right? Absolutely. And it, it sounds like those are the kinds of opportunities that that you were looking for. That that's exactly right. You know, turning and, and I think that I remember hearing when I was in business school here that hope is not a strategy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it was a finance class. It I heard sounds that. like it. Yes, <laughs> and, and, and they're it, on later. Fine. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think it gets to, to your point too: is that you know leadership. Leadership through action. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you know, you can think about things, you can hope for mm-hmm. things, you can you know wish for things, but but leadership takes action. So what as you come. Um, so do you go into remission? Is that point at that point? That's a good that way to describe, describe it. it. Exactly. Um, and w- what were some of the early actions that you felt like you could take or or didn't want to regret not taking? Yeah. So <laughs> um, finally had the diagnosis made um, right around the time I had my last rites read to me. Fortunately, chemotherapy saved my life. My my organ function began to return. I was able to get out of the hospital bed. Um, and I started to, to feel well enough to where I could eventually be discharged from the hospital. Um, but to your point, I was immediately moving into action mode. Mm-hmm. And that was 
trying to figure out who is the world's expert for Castleman disease. I would have gone anywhere um, to find that person. And that person is in Little Rock, Arkansas. His name is Fritz Van Rie. He's the world's expert. And so we had to figure out a way over the next couple of weeks to get me to Little Rock. Once Mm -hmm. I was well enough um, with the disease because of liver failure and kidney failure, you gain a lot of fluid. So I had a really big belly filled with about about seven liters of fluid. And I I was just unwell. So we had to wait till I was strong enough to really Mm -hmm. be able to go. And I went to Little Rock and Unfortunately, um, I started to have a relapse while I was in Little Rock. Mm-hmm. And so despite the chemotherapy, just a few weeks later, I was back in the hospital, back with organ failure, needing daily transfusions. I was on dialysis because of liver mm-hmm. or kidney failure. Very, very ill. Um, but I was with the expert. And so all oh. of a sudden, you know, it was a little bit less scary. I mean, I was very sick and it was and, and I nearly died for a third time. But I was at least I was, you know, in the right place. And he gave me a combination of seven chemotherapies, kind of like the worst chemotherapies there are, but it just obliterated my immune system, which was trying to kill me. So it, it worked and mm-hmm. it saved my life. And, and, it, and it just reminds me of, of a quick anecdote that I'll share from from when I first was starting to feel better. Um, it was New Year's Eve of 2010. I'd now spent almost five months, most of that time hospitalized. And um, my dad and I decided to go for a walk around the hematology oncology floor. And on our first lap around, we noticed there was a gentleman who looked like he'd been drinking on New Year's Eve. He was kind of swaying in his chair a little bit. And on our next lap around, he was on the floor. And so my dad ran over to him and helped him back into his chair. And he looked at us and he said, thanks so much. Good luck to you and your wife. And my dad and I were like, wife, what's he talking about? And I looked at my belly, um, which Uh was quite big. And um, I realized he thought I was my dad's pregnant wife. And that we were walking laps to deliver our our child. Um, It's going to be so exciting. New Year's Day, baby. Exactly. And and so I turned away and I said, man, you've got an ugly wife. Uh. (laughs) And we laughed so hard. Um, But I think that that uh, experience, uh, I think, is an important lesson in life and and maybe in leadership, too. that's trying to find positivity in the midst of some really mm-hmm. tough times. You know, being confused as your father's pregnant wife could could have been a low point, mm-hmm. but um, but we laughed pretty hard. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Just well, let me uh, let me just remind everyone uh, that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel One Thirty Two. Jeff Klein and I, Ann Greenhall, have the real pleasure of speaking with David Fagenbaum about his book Chasing My Cure. So. Jeff, pick up that question. No, I, I just wanted to ask a little bit more about maybe the, the role of humor for you. In, mm-hmm. um, and I know you know Angela Duckworth, who's here at, uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania and has done incredible work around grit and passion and perseverance. Um, how, what role does humor play as you really confront this kind of unknown adversity? Yeah, something I talk about in my book is about how, you know, when you think about death and some of these really tough things like terminal illness, um, you would think that humor and positivity would be kind of the furthest thing yeah. away from what you would be thinking about. But I've, I've actually found that um, that laughing and laughing, especially with the people you love, it, there's nothing that really joins at least my family and my friends yeah. together. Um, I, I, maybe there's something wrong with us, but for whatever reason, we just love to laugh together in, in the midst of really tough times, even when I'm in the hospital or, or even, you know, while I'm getting infusions, like that's the time where we find that laughter and it, it, it's a way for us to bond, but it's also, I think, kind of a way to, to kind of like 
you know, sated Castleman disease. Like, you know, you're not going to yeah. stop me <laughs> from, from being happy. You're not going to yeah. stop us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to figure out a way. Um, you know, I don't know if I can say this on, on air, but it's kind of an uh, you definitely can. F, <laughs> F- you yeah. to right. Castleman disease yeah. is kind yeah. of what it is. If you yeah. can laugh in the midst yeah. of, of what is a terrible disease, um, I think that's kind of our way to send a message that, you know, we're going to keep living and, and keep making the most of life. Mm. No, yeah. I went in a different direction. <laughs> Are you ready? Wait, well, this is all. You were know. you going to swear too? <laughs> no. That's a, I mean, you should. It's you like should. a truck driver in here. <laughs> Does F U count as a swear? No, but not you sure. just have to remember, like we're we're channel neighbors to Howard Stern. Right. So, okay. Exactly. Everything, everything so everything through. is okay. Satellite. Right. <laughs> all right. So here's where I was going. That I was wondering if that, in addition to being really a humorous moment, was also maybe really poignant in a way, because if I remember right, you lost your mother to cancer. I did. And so here you are walking around with your father, confused uh, as your mother, yeah. having your own birth. You're, you're, you're <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. I went in a different direction. Sorry. I never connected gonna... the dots in, in that exact way. <laughs> You're going to walk out of the studio a changed man, David. You're right. No, you... Leadership in action. Come on, we do things here, Jeff. No, I, I totally agree with you. And actually, the experience of kind of laughing in the midst of the storm and in the midst of tough times, I think that's something I really did learn from my mom, watching her. Mm. She was diagnosed with cancer right when I began my freshman year of college oh. and passed away my sophomore year of college. And of course, that was absolutely devastating for me and, and for my whole family. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there are a number of really beautiful memories that I have, particularly from that year with, with my mom. Um, but one of them was actually um, came right after her diagnosis. And it was when she went to get the brain tumor removed. And so with the tumor, they took out a large portion of her brain. And we were very worried about whether we would have my mom sure. after yeah. the surgery. You know, would it still be her? And um when we walked back to see her and they opened up the curtains to her, uh, we noticed that she had a wrap around her head and she had a, a bulb where fluid was draining from the surgery site. And um, we were all very tense and didn't know um, what to say or what she would say. And she looked at us and she pointed it at her head and she said, Chiquita Banana Lady. And um, <laughs> we just burst into laughter. Um, you know, she was making light of the fact that she had a wrap around her head (laughs) that looked kind of like the Chiquita banana lady. (laughs) And she had a bulb that also looked like that. And, and and that's the kind of person my mom was. And she, she did that for us. You know, she was, she wanted to make us feel comfortable and we said, wow, we've, we've got our mom here. And so for me, that's, that's been an example for how to deal with really difficult life challenges gracefully. Yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, I can remember a, a mentor a long time saying to me that when you, uh, when you laugh, and especially when you laugh with other people, um, you're all present in that moment like together. That. Right? I like and it's, that. It's kind of a reminder that we're all here, and we're here together now. Yeah. So, David, so you were in Little Rock, Arkansas. You were with the world's expert, and yet that was the third close encounter. So apparently, even being there with yep. the third with the expert didn't keep you from having subsequent encounters. That's exactly right. And, and right around that time, um, I was started on an experimental drug. The only drug that's actually ever undergone a clinical trial for Castleman disease was happening at that time. And I was able to, able to get emergency compassionate use of the drug. And we hoped, you know, maybe this is the trick. Maybe this is going to stop it from coming back. And um, so I was able to return to Penn Medical School mm-hmm. on this experimental drug. I was getting infusions every three weeks. 
and and just really hoping that it would never come back and, and kind of believing that that there were people doing research and that this disease was maybe in my rearview mirror. And so um, I came back to Penn and I got back on my initial track. And unfortunately, a few months later, I relapsed, even oh. on this experimental drug. And so I went back out to Little Rock um, and uh, I was really sick. And my doctor came in, in the room and I had a conversation with him. Where I said, okay, this drug's not working, but what other drugs are in development? And he said, there are none. And I said, okay, well, if there aren't any drugs involvement, what are some promising leads? You know, are there cell types? Are there pathways? What, what else could we go after? He said, there aren't any. Um, and I said, well, what else do we know? No, no one knows anything else. And um, I remember this this kind of frightening feeling mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. My, my sisters, my dad, and my girlfriend at the time, she's not now my wife, were all in the room. And... Um, I remember all of us just being totally shocked. You know, here we are with the world's expert. But what I learned there was that the world's expert can only know as much as the world knows. Yeah. And if the world doesn't know the answers yeah. to these questions, then, then, you know, the world's expert will not. So I turned to my sisters, my wife and, and my dad, and I told them, I said, I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to cure this disease. And that's really what, what I've been working on for the last seven years. Mm. So how did you come out of remission or into back <laughs> yeah. into remission? So I got the same combination of seven chemotherapies again in Little Rock. It's kind of this atomic atomic bomb approach, basically. Yeah. Got me into remission, um, saved my life, you know, after now a fourth time. And um, I came back to Penn, but this time I didn't come back to get back on my plan to become a clinical oncologist like I wanted to be. I came back on a mission to try Mm -hmm. to identify new treatments and cures for Castleman disease. And the first person I turned to is my mentor and friend, Arthur Rubenstein. He was Mm -hmm. the former dean of the medical school. And at the time, he'd recently retired. Um, And he was helping to lead Penn's new orphan disease center. And so he was helping to mobilize resources around this rare disease center. And um, I turned to him for guidance and advice and decided that the way that I would fight Castleman disease would be kind of a a three-pronged approach. The first is that I'd begin conducting laboratory research here at Penn. Um, A colleague of mine had lab space that she let me start doing Castleman's research, most of the work on my own samples, Um, but starting to do (laughs) laboratory work into Castleman disease in parallel creating a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network because I knew I couldn't make enough progress in my lab as a medical student here at Penn. What we really needed was an international effort. And then thirdly, to begin to try to take what we learn for Castleman disease and apply to other rare diseases and also apply what we learn from other rare diseases to Castleman disease mm-hmm. through the orphan disease center that Arthur was um, was leading at the time. And, and so for me, it's really been this kind of three-step approach or three-tier approach that I've been working on for the last seven years. Mm. So did the cocktail approach then finally send you into remission? It did. Um, but unfortunately, I relapsed not, not too <laughs> shortly thereafter. Whoa. So I, I finished medical school after number four. I finished medical school and I decided to start at business school at Warden. And and most people say, wait, medical school and then business school, you know, why, you know, why? (laughs) (laughs) Not not that there's any reason (laughs) not to do an MBA at Warden. Of course, there's a lot of good reasons to, but, but you know, why? And for me, it was because when I decided to really square up to Castleman disease and start deciding to fight it and try to identify treatments and cures, I learned that actually medicine and science um, and medical technologies were really not the rate-limiting step for progress for Castleman disease. The rate-limiting step was that people weren't collaborating, that there was not efficient use of samples and of data and of money, that it was an issue of organization and management more than an issue of science and technology. And so I could do all the science I wanted, but if it wasn't well-organized and wasn't coordinated and, and the money wasn't being used efficiently, then we wouldn't make enough progress. And so that led me to decide to do the MBA here at Warden. And, um, 
a couple months into my MBA uh, is when I had my fifth yeah. deadly oh. flare. And this one was, was really bad at the time. I was had just gotten engaged to my wife, and um, we uh, um, went back out to Little Rock when I started to have organ failure again, and I was hospitalized there again. And um, for the fifth time, I got really, really sick and approached death. And um, in particular, I had really low platelets for about a week, and, and so low that I was kind of at constant risk of a, of a bleed in my brain that would just mm-hmm. have been completely fatal. Oh. And... Um, so we, we, we made it through that. I, I survived that. Um, but when I got out of the hospital, I decided, or really, I just turned back to all the data I'd been generating over the previous year. So I'd been collecting samples on myself over that year. I'd been generating data in the lab and spent the next almost about six or seven weeks just going through data, running additional experiments and trying to see, is there something is there a drug that maybe we could use to target something that's going wrong in my disease? At that stage, I'd failed every drug that had ever been tried for Castleman disease, but maybe there was something out there that we didn't know about. And so for me, I, I dove into the data and was able to identify a target, something that we thought a drug could go against that might work, and actually decided to start, it on my, start myself on it oh, um, wow. back in 20, uh, 2014. And was that successful? Was that choice successful? It has turned out to be very, very successful. successful. So it's now been five and a half years that I've been in remission on this drug that had never been tried before in Castleman disease, a drug that is was developed for kidney transplantation 25 years ago and is available every time I walked past a CVS for all those years that I was sick. That drug, you know, was... Was on in that shelf. on wow. that shelf, right? Yeah. It's hard to imagine that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and what I think is important is so it's saving my life. It's now been five and a half years, no relapses. We're giving it to other patients. We just started a trial here at Penn a couple weeks ago. But what it what it brings up to me is how many other drugs are there out there that right. actually might be treatments or cures for other diseases that just no one's ever thought to try. Right. And you know, Jeff, we don't always ask for callers, but you know, I think we should just to be fair. So if you have a question about our book, our conversation night. Please join us. Call 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. We want to give our listeners a, a chance to get a word in edgewise. Well, no, I, I just thought it was, it was nice that you said to be fair. Yeah, to be fair. So, Because, you I mean, know, what, we take up a lot of talk time. We I know, don't but create what the, space. What the listeners should know <laughs> is that that was Anne's incredibly polite way of saying, like, you better come with a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to give you four minutes of the next 30. Exactly. question better be pretty good. It better be good. <laughs> right. That's but true. Give us a call. Give us a call. So, David, uh, you know, we talked about your experience, your five times near-death experiences, and uh, how that really galvanized for you the importance of think it and do it. And uh, I thought it would be good to talk a little bit about the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. So tell us a little bit about that organization. Yeah, absolutely. So the CDCN, um, I I started it seven years ago, along with Fritz Van Rie, my doctor in Little Rock, and also my mentor here at at Penn, uh, Arthur Rubenstein. And when we set out to create the CDCN, we spent quite a bit of time looking at how other rare disease organizations function and how they um, the ones that have been successful and less successful. And we came up with um, a, a maybe you'd say radical approach to thinking about the way to push forward uh, research for rare disease. Typically, rare disease research um, occurs where groups will raise money and then they invite the best researchers to apply to use it however those researchers think they mm-hmm. should use it. And then you pick the best applicants as kind of traditional re- uh, request for proposal sure. approach. Um, and that had been done for Castleman disease, but unfortunately, very little progress had been made. 
So we decided rather than taking that approach, we would spend a lot of time identifying all the physicians and researchers worldwide that were either treating patients or, or conducting research, and then crowdsource amongst that community of about 400 physicians and researchers to identify what are the most important research questions that need to be need to be answered, what are the most important studies that need to be done, and then figuring out who is the best person in the world to go do it, and then recruiting those people to come do Castleman's work. So these are people who had never studied Castleman's before, mm. don't even naturally know about the disease, but they might be the best person in the world for serum proteomics or genet or genomic work. So um, it's this idea of of using the community to prioritize and identify what should be mm. done, and then go going out and finding the best person in the world to actually go do it. And, and I think the reason that that approach is so important in the rare disease space is that if you have a common disease and you put out a request for proposals, you might get 100 applicants or 200 applicants, and you have enough money to incentivize a lot of people to want to apply. But in the rare disease space, you're going to have smaller amounts of money you can give out, and you're going to have far fewer researchers that know anything about Castleman disease or another rare disease. And so you might get three people that apply. And what's the likelihood that one of those three people is actually going to be the right person with the right idea at the yeah. right time for your disease. And this sort of approach um, has really been a game changer for us. Mm. Wow. Jeff? There, you know, when, when I think about that kind of a, a collective approach, um, it reminds me of some of the, the collective impact or social impact collectives that mm -hmm. have existed. And, and, you know, as we looked at the research around these multi-organizational efforts to, you know, there's a couple here in Philadelphia that are just incredible, one trying to tackle childhood literacy, another trying to um, really confront violence against women. Um, and, and, and so one of the things that's emerged has been um, the recognition that any kind of collective action initiative really needs a backbone to it. Right and an organizing structure, yes. um, and, and I imagine that that's the role that that you and your close colleagues are playing. Um, tell us about what yeah. what that's like, and the amount of both, you know, communicating from a listening and communicating from a disseminating perspective that you've got to do. Yeah, great question. So for us, you know, once we identified the the brain trust, once we got everyone together to identify what work should be done, and then we prioritized it into the order that we wanted to do it. Now we, our organization had a, a game plan, what we call our international research agenda, which was every study prioritized from one to 20 that we mm -hmm. needed to do. Um, and so with each one of those studies, it was we needed to identify samples, funding, and the right researcher. And so it really gave this kind of very clear, you described you the word backbone. And mm -hmm. I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, everything we do is based on these 20 projects. And so money, samples, and getting the right person. And for my team, which early on was just a number of classmates at Warden, actually, yeah. and classmates yeah. from medical school that were volunteering their time, um, our team would go out and try to recruit the right people, go out and try to fundraise for these studies. Um, we found that transparency and being able to say, these are th these are the studies we're working on. This is how your money's going to be used. Mm -hmm. Each sample cost this much, this many dollars. That sort of transparency was really helpful for us, mm -hmm. and it continues to be really helpful. And in fact, we um, have only raised and, and spent uh, about $1 million on research over the last seven years. And I say only when, if you told me that seven years ago, I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, but, <laughs> but it's only because compared to many other rare disease organizations and, 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 uh, and missions, a million dollars really isn't a huge amount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But 
because we've focused each of those dollars in such high priority areas and because it really was a crowdsourced effort to figure out what should be done, we've been able to, to leverage those that $1 million that we spent has then resulted in an additional $7 million in funding from external sources, so from the federal government and also from foundations. Mm-hmm. And those also have been spent in a really focused way. So $8 million spent in an extremely you know focused way in Castleman disease has resulted in really exciting progress. So oh, good. Yeah, so we actually just started a clinical trial a couple of weeks ago. It's the first clinical trial ever for treatment refractory Castleman disease patients um, based on the work that we've done. We published the first ever diagnostic criteria a couple of years ago, the first ever treatment guidelines. Things, These kind of first evers that yeah. weren't happening kind of in the old approach. But I think that there's, um, bro- there's a broader lesson for just the business and the community and in leadership. And that's that sometimes you have to really rethink you know, existing mm-hmm. structures. And even mm-hmm. though it was done one way for years, doesn't mean that's the way it needs to be done forever. Mm. We just had... Um Jeb Bush was here yesterday to deliver a, a lecture wow. to um, the incoming students, both our undergraduates and graduates. And and one of the things he talked about from a you know the kind of fundamental to his leadership style was a desire to challenge the orthodoxy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, just in challenging it, in it invites both a fresh assessment of today's environment as well as a fresh a fresh assessment of the strengths and skills and resources that you know a leader can bring to bear on a problem. So I, um, it, it's funny this is in the air right now. This this need to sort of rethink. Absolutely, right? and you know if we had not taken this kind of radical approach to to Castleman's research, which led to the progress that we've had, um, and if we hadn't really questioned the way that Castleman's had been thought for so long. I, I probably wouldn't be in this chair with you right yeah. now. I, I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be here. Right. Um, in the last five years, I probably would have had five more relapses and oh. most certainly yeah. couldn't have survived that many. And so um, I think that I guess I'm, I'm living proof that we need yeah. to question the status quo. Um, and I think the Castleman's effort and, and certainly many others like it um, really – demonstrate that um, just because that's the way it's been done doesn't mean that's how it always needs to happen. David, are you finding then that other rare diseases are taking this collective approach? Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, we've actually been partnering with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative for the last year. So CZI, which of course is Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan's yep. um, uh, social arm, they uh, decided to move into the rare disease space about a year ago and spent uh, quite a bit of time speaking to different rare disease groups and getting an idea for you know who's doing what and how are things being done. And um, they decided uh, about about a year ago um, to partner with us because they want to help to scale our approach to other rare diseases. There's a number of rare diseases that have been following what we call the collaborative network approach, which is the way that we, we mm-hmm. do research. Um, but Chan Zuckerberg Initiative wants to help this to be the approach that, that many, many other rare diseases take. And so it's been a really fun year working with them and working with a bunch of other rare diseases to say, you know, how can we scale our approach? Because we've created a lot of custom tools for the Castleman disease field, but we're working with CZI to try to make those um, applicable to other rare diseases. Maybe just one more question here, David. Just, you know, the notion of a rare disease, um, it's it's not just a matter of numbers. Is that correct? You know, for you gave the example of, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease, yep. which has the same frequency as Castleman and yet is widely known. Yes. So uh, why is it that some diseases are overlooked and others are not? It's a, a really good question. I, I think that um, 
So first off, the definition to be called a, a rare or an orphan disease, you have to have less than 200,000 patients alive in the U.S. at any one time. Um, that, that's kind of the, the threshold we, we have. And so um, there are 7,000 diseases that, that have fewer than 200,000 individuals in the U.S. And I mentioned earlier, that affects 30 million Americans. So one in 10 Americans have a rare disease. And as I also mentioned, 95% don't have a single FDA-approved therapy. So there's this huge wow. community. And, and, you know, even though individually each disease is rare, collectively it's a huge community. It's a huge burden on the healthcare system. Um, I hate to use the word burden um, because yeah. uh, it, we're just a big challenge um, mm-hmm. for the healthcare yeah. system. Yeah. And so, and it's a challenge that we need to fix um, because there are patients like myself and, and others with rare diseases that really are suffering due to the lack of resources right. and, and research. And so your question around, you know, why some and not others, and, and what I've learned and what I think the answer is, is that it kind of is like luck. Yeah. And it's that um, some diseases have, um, you know, are unlucky or lucky, I don't know what the right way to describe it, of, of having a champion that comes around and says, you know, I'm going to fight this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in the multiple myeloma space, um, there's someone named Kathy Juisty, who is, she's that champion. She was mm-hmm. diagnosed I think 20 or so years ago and and myeloma just kind of hit the wrong person. It shouldn't have done that because <laughs> yeah. you know Kathy yeah. has fought back. Yeah. And my my other fellow Castleman's patients and I we we often say that Castleman disease hit the wrong people. They should not <laughs> Castleman disease should not have affected us because we're fighting back. And mm-hmm. if they'd picked some other people maybe maybe <laughs> maybe Castleman disease would be in a better place, but um, but really we've turned the tide against this disease and and we often like to think that yeah, it, it affected the wrong people and because you know it messed with the wrong people, mm-hmm. we're fighting back. Mm. Jeff <laughs> um I I love this notion of of we're fighting back, and it's it's actually where I um, – another of the sort of threads here that I was interested in, you've spoken a lot about, you know, the the role your mentor played, the role the Mm -hmm. leading expert played, the collectives. What role did other um, patients play? who were afflict, afflicted with Castleman's? A really important role, and that's that early on when we first decided to start the CDCN, many patients came and contacted me and said, you know, I want to be a part of this and I yeah. want to help out. Um, one patient in particular to, to highlight is a patient named Raj, who was also a third-year medical student when he became ill mm-hmm. with my disease and also became very, very ill, just like I did. And I share his story um, in the book because he's an example of someone who, when I had my fifth deadly um, flare of this disease, he decided to take time out of medical school. He'd already recovered from his his initial bout, and he was back on track. Mm. But he, when he heard that I relapsed, he and he knew that I was fighting back and starting this foundation, he decided to take time to go out on leave just to fully focus on Castleman disease research. And the time that he spent focused on Castleman disease research with me ended up really being the foundation for a number of the studies that we mm-hmm. now are doing. And here we are years later, um, <laughs> learning about the disease, treating patients better because of the time that Raj put in. And so it's it's patients like that. It's loved ones of patients. Maleva Rapaski, her daughter has Castleman disease. Her daughter was actually the second patient to be treated with the drug that I'm on. So I was the first person oh, to wow. try serolimus um, with my disease. And Katie was the second patient. Mm-hmm. Um, Maleva, her mother, has just been this incredible champion for us, fighting fighting Castleman disease daily and supporting patients along the way. So it's really been, sometimes I, I use the, the term, it's been an, an army of Castleman's patients. 
patient. It's not, yeah. um, you know, it's not just me. If it was just me, we would have made about one one thousandth of the progress <laughs> yeah. that we have. But it's been an army, and through this army, we've been able to make a ton of progress. Mm. What one of our. Uh good friends here on the show and, and, and frequent guests over the years uh, is a gentleman named Henry, Henry Timms. And Henry was, uh, well, he's currently running the Lincoln Center up in New York. He ran the 92nd Street Y before that. Oh, but, wow. but he would be known probably most for, uh, and I'm going to put this word in, in quotes because that's what he would do, being the founder of the Giving Tuesday movement. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Right? So the, and this is, you know, we have Black Friday, we have Cyber Monday, and then Tuesday there is now an, a global mm-hmm. um, effort to raise money for nonprofits around the world. And it led him, I think that experience really led him to um, question a lot of the orthodoxy around what power looks like and and how power works. And what they found with Giving Tuesday was they thought they had a good idea, but they thought that the way to spread the idea was to give it away Mm. as much as they could, right? And to enlist and empower and applaud and recognize everyone who took the concept and did something new and interesting with it and everything else. And as Mm -hmm. I'm, as I'm listening to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, this story and, and your work specifically with, with the CDCN, um, you know, I'm, I'm struck by, we started the, we started this whole conversation talking about hope Mm -hmm. and, you know, (laughs) hope plus action. What are some of the other, you know, big actions or small actions that, you were so grateful for and probably also so surprised by um, as you were really trying to marshal these this kind of this kind of social movement frankly yeah you're you're absolutely right you know we my book's titled chasing my cure but really it should be chasing our cure yeah. because you're exactly right it's been this idea of bringing us all together to mm-hmm. to fight together and and yes it started out for me personally for my disease but now it's become so much bigger than my disease it's it's that's other patients with my disease mm-hmm. so it's also other diseases right. mm-hmm. and so I, I think that it's um you know it's it's this idea that um when you can bring other people together and when you can have this collective fight and, and whether it's giving Tuesday and all getting together, as you said, so many charities have gotten, gotten behind this and have made it their own. Um, I think you can achieve so much more than if it's mm-hmm. any, any one on their own. And so I think we've really benefited from, from pulling all these people together with various backgrounds um, and, and really diverse thoughts to, to be able to, take on Castleman disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I think that the diversity of thought is certainly one of these lessons that, that we've taken away from this, how important it is to mm-hmm. to bring in people who maybe aren't physicians, aren't scientists, yeah. to, to think about how we're doing things, bringing in warden professors to give us <laughs> advice on operations of research, um, you know, bringing in the right people and, 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 and really trusting that if you get the right people together and you have a, a clear vision um, that, uh, that people can connect to, mm-hmm. a really clear mission mm-hmm. and vision, um, then you can accomplish so much together. Mm, very yeah. good. Let me just remind everyone this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. We're talking tonight with David Fagenbaum about his memoir called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Jeff, you had a question, and I jumped in. I have like 17. I know, I know, but we don't have... Two. Okay, all right, all right, two. two. There's one I've been... Anyway. I know, go All right. (laughs) 
I, I just want to pick up on that that last thing you said about the diversity of thought. Because you know we have a, a colleague at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, Ronald Heifetz, and he's one of the things I think he's really best known for is he's kind of characterized the the world of problems into two sets. You've got technical problems, and they've got a known answer. And then you've got adaptive problems, and they're the ones that have no known answer. Yes, right. And um, certainly, you know, this journey you've described falls squarely into the adaptive <laughs> <Yeah>. problem <laughs> category. And I and I think what he's realized is, um, you know, through his research and his teaching, is really the necessity of that diversity of thought to again um, a emerging theme for the show, sort of challenge the orthodoxy. Yes. Um, what, as you bring people together, though, there are also, um, you know, it, it is work to create that collective frame when you've got people coming mm -hmm. from so many different backgrounds and disciplines and, and protocols, et cetera. So what did you learn about how to get, you know, the diversity of thought that you were seeking, but get them also on the same page? Mm. Yeah, that's very difficult to do, <laughs> yes. right? Um, you know, our, our scientific advisory board, we've got 32 members from five continents, you know, many countries. And, and so, you know, it does become challenging when you mm -hmm. bring together people like that. But I, I think the thing that helped us the most is to always be so committed to our mission. You know, why mm -hmm. are we here? Starting everything, every meeting with why, and then mm -hmm. also including patients in addition to myself as part of these meetings. And of course, when I was going through my early challenges, most meetings I was at, I was bald from the chemotherapy that mm -hmm. I recently got, recently gotten. And, and I think that seeing patients and having us be a part of this and being reminded physically um, mm -hmm. that there are, there are people in this room that, that all they care about our, our answers, you know, that we don't care about authorship order on a paper. We don't care about <laughs> things that, that really aren't important. We care about the really important stuff. And I think that that really helped. And I think that rubbed off a bit on our community in the sense that, you know, scientists can't just be scientists. They also need to be thinking, yeah. you know, about, about the, you know, the patient experience at the yeah. same time. I think that's really helped us out a lot. Yeah. That role modeling, that really makes a lot of sense. All right. Here's the question I've always wanted to ask you. And it's something that I am like particularly, and would know this, I am acutely yeah. fascinated by this question. Um, so we talked a lot about hope, right? And hope, um, I think I would, I would, my experience of hope is that it is one of the best ways to manage anxiety. Yes. Um, I can only begin to imagine the anxiety you carried with you, probably continue to carry with you through all of this. Um, what what role did the anxiety play? So, uh, and would you a, want it to go away? That's a good question. <laughs> um, so, the anxiety really, for me, served as fuel yeah. for action. And so um, today actually marks exactly 68 months since the last time that I was in the hospital. So the, oh, the 5th boy. of the month, uh, it was January 5th of, of 2014 is when I consider that the start mm -hmm. of this remission. Right. Um, and I never round up. I, I, I never say, you know, it's been almost six years because uh, it, it's not yet six right. years. And, and, I, and I don't know what tomorrow um, is going to hold. I don't know if I'll relapse tomorrow. Um, what I do know is that I'm trying to channel that anxiety and um, and the uncertainty of the future into mm -hmm. action, into to knowing that if I do relapse tomorrow or a month from now, 
that I will have done everything in my power in the time that I had to do what I could against this disease. Um, we mentioned uh, or chatted during the break that I now have a one-year-old, uh, <laughs> yeah. Amelia. Um, and uh, I dreamed uh, when I first got sick and I was in the ICU and I was dying, I dreamed about the idea of one day getting married to Caitlin and Aww. one day having <laughs> having Amelia. And, and now I, I am married to Caitlin and I do have this one-year-old daughter, Amelia, and so I, I'm, I was motivated by hope for mm-hmm. this future. Now I, I'm motivated by hope for more future yeah. with, with, the, with, with the two of them and, and with others that I love. And so I think it's, it's using to the best I can mm-hmm. the uncertainty of, of my disease to then drive action. That's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you, David. Did you read the inscription in this book? <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can do it. <laughs> I would like to dedicate this book to my mom, my dad, my sisters, and Caitlin and Amelia. You taught me how to live, supported me when I was dying, and inspired me to chase cures for my disease and others. I love you. (laughs) It's unbelievably beautiful and wonderful. And when you talk about turning you know hope into action that means doing things and saying things yes. you know saying things to people that you that you really care about so i think it's just only fitting that we end with our conversation with david on that note so david um before we go though please tell our listeners how they can find out more about your book Sure. Chasing My Cure is going to be available nationwide on Tuesday, September 10th. Um, It's currently available on Amazon for pre-order. And I'm just so excited to be able to share my experiences, um, my challenges, this universal tale of trying to get up and fight back after life knocks us down with the world. And also sharing the story of Castleman disease. This is a disease we've made a lot of progress, but we've still got a long way to go. And I hope that listeners and, and anyone who wants to be a part of it can be a part of helping to cure this disease. Yeah, and I really do hope it's a big success because I, you you have made me appreciate how important um, you know marketing and brand and social media is in our efforts to fight various diseases. So I hope that's the case. Now, Jeff and I and Mike, if he were here, we usually do a little bit of an AAR, an after-action review. So Jeff, we only have about a minute, but I can't resist asking you what reflection you'll take home with you after our talk tonight. Well, First, wipe the tear from your eye. Yeah, I, I will, <laughs> I'll take many, but I, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry with me uh, David's motto, think it, do it. Yeah. Right? And, you know, that hope is best expressed through action. Um, And then just one of those things that seems to be in the ether right now um, and that I I hope our country and I hope the world can take on, and that is um, to challenge the orthodoxy, right? And don't assume that the way it's always been done is the way it should be done. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, you and I overlap a little bit. I think that notion of turning hope into action, not just hoping, but actually doing, yeah. I think is really critical. And I also really hope in, in the air as well. And now, David, you get, did you have a reflection based I've, on our conversation? I've just loved the opportunity to chat with you guys. Of course, I've, I've known you for years, but this has <laughs> been so fun to, to reflect with you guys and um, just uh, look forward to having further chats like this. And thank you guys so much for having me on the air. My pleasure. Well, I think we're going to have to have David back on the show. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, we, we promised off air we would 
scheme up other ways to do things together. <laughs> That's so, right. Deal. Yeah, <laughs> All absolutely. Right. Well, once again, let me remind leader, uh, listeners that you've been listening. You're leaders also. Our listeners are leaders, don't mm-hmm. you think? They're listening to Leadership Especially in Action. Especially listening to this show. Absolutely. <laughs> On Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Tonight, Jeff Klein and I, Ann Greenhall, had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. David Fagenbaum about his memoir called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 